Good morning, you hardy Hoosiers. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Congratulations. You apparently all have four-wheel drive vehicles. Thoughtful planning. Way to go. Or you live across the street. <laughs> Welcome. Good to see you. Well, we're continuing our series on the grave robber this morning with the second miracle found in the Gospel of John, Miracles of Jesus. And this is the healing of a boy, a nobleman's son. And there is much we can learn from this important event. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 46 to 54. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll project these words on the screen for you. And as is our custom, I invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's Word. And once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed, I guess so. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. And God inspire us today through his word. You may be seated. Some of you will recall the name Dr. Richard Halverson. Dr. Halverson was the chaplain of the United States Senate for many years. And prior to serving in the Senate, Dr. Halverson pastored Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland. He did what pastors do, everything from marrying and burying. But he believed, and he often spoke about this, that his most important function was pronouncing the benediction at the end of every service. And so every week, it was the last thing he said and the last thing people heard from him and his church for 23 years. Now, you know, we have a, a consistent benediction at the end of our services, and I hope it's meaningful to you. But these were the words that Dr. Halverson used those 23 years in his local church for the benediction. He would say, you go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go... God is sending you, and wherever you are, God has put you there. That's interesting and perhaps even provocative, isn't it? Dr. Halverson reminded his congregation of that truth week in, week out, year in and year out. And indeed, even at Dr. Halverson's funeral service, uh, he passed in December of 1995. So on that day of his funeral, he reminded them one last time. So at the conclusion of the funeral service, the guy in the sound booth hit play, and Dr. Halverson, one more time, said these words, you go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is sending you, and wherever you are, God has put you there. It's a good reminder, right? Uh, three things that we want to consider now with regard to this second miracle Jesus performed, the healing of this boy, the nobleman's son. And the first point I want to make is that we should be sensitive to divine appointments. Divine appointments. The word you need there is appointment. 
A few years ago, during our serve week, serve, as you know, is that week in June when we have hundreds of our children and youth who uh, disperse across our county and in dozens of venues make a difference in the lives of people in practical ways, serving people with the love of God. And a few years ago, as I mentioned, we had four teenagers who were walking in one of our midtown neighborhoods, and as they were walking, they were praying. So they were prayer walking. By that, we just simply mean folks walk down the street, and if you see people, you pray for them. If you see businesses, you pray for those businesses. Agencies, you pray for them. You, you, you sense the needs in that particular neighborhood, and you pray. You're walking, and you're praying, prayer walking. And these four teens were prayer walking that morning, and they found an elderly woman on the front porch of one of the homes. And as they walked by, the woman stood up and said, what are you, what are you kids doing? And they said, well, we're, we're prayer walking. We're just praying for people as we see them in your neighborhood and praying for situations here. And she said, would you please come in to my house? And they said, we will. And that's why we sent them out in fours. You know, there's safety in numbers. And so they went into this woman's house, and she led them to the back of the house, to a back room. The shades were pulled. It was no lights on. It was dark in this back room, and they found an elderly man sitting in a chair. And the man looked at them and said, what are you doing? Why are you here? They said, well, we're just walking your neighborhood and praying, and so we're here to pray for you. And the man broke down and began to cry. And after he composed himself, he looked at these four teens and said, you have no idea what this means to me. You see, just this morning, I prayed myself for the first time in many, many years. I've been so discouraged and so depressed that I languished for life. And, and he said, this morning, I prayed a simple prayer. And I said, God, something has to happen today or I think I can't go on. And he had contemplated suicide that day. And so he prayed, God, if you are real, please send someone by my house today to pray for me. And so here are these four teenagers from our church who put their hands on this man and prayed. And it was deeply meaningful to him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And here was God speaking to this man. So here's what I want you to be sensitive to. If you live a spirit-filled life, it's going to be a subplot a fairly regular occurrence for you that you are going to find yourself in the right place at the right time talking to the right person and you know it is by the orchestration of God. It's an appointment that God has set up for you. It's a divine appointment. And in that moment, you have the opportunity to make good on that appointment. Now, it's God's business to get us into the appointment. It's our business to show up and to be present in that opportunity. So here's what I want to encourage you to do with this first point. Rather than thinking only about the miracle you might need or your family, your friend might need today, think about the fact that you might be the miracle that someone else needs. That God might use you to be the miracle in another person's life. And if you'll do that, God will set up all kinds of divine appointments. Now, some of you, this may be a new, completely new concept, a new idea, but let me just ask, just, and, and just by a show of hands, because it's amazing what God does. How many of you know you've been in a divine appointment sometime in your life? I mean, you know God put you in the right place. This is the way it works. 
And so it's part, as I say, part of the subplot of your life. God will order the steps of his people. God does orchestrate relationships and moments. And we find ourselves almost in amazement sometimes at the way God has coordinated all these events to make it possible for us to be an influence in the world. So divine appointments. Now here's the second thought I want to give you. And that is remember your miracles. Remember your miracles. The word you need there is miracles. The scripture says, the, the text from today says, so Jesus came again to Cana. Interesting. He came again to Cana. Several years ago, uh, Beth and I took our youngest son, Isaac, back to my hometown, which is Boswell, Indiana. Boswell's in west central Indiana, and it's a, it's a little burg that is is completely insignificant. <laughs> it has a population of about 750, maybe 800 people, and there's not much left of it. Uh, there's a few churches there, and one of the churches in my hometown is the United Methodist Church, and that is where both Beth and I were converted. We, we came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ in the context of that church, and and what was driving this trip back to Boswell, uh, on the surface of it, I, I said to Isaac, who was about 14, 15, maybe 13 at the time, he, he, I said, you know, let me take you back to my hometown and show you where I grew up. So it was kind of, that, that was the excuse. But what was in my heart was I needed, I needed to go back to that church, into that sanctuary, and kneel down at that altar one more time. And I just needed to remind myself of the miracle of my own conversion. So we were in Basel. We took our bikes. We got on our bikes. We were riding around town. We went to all the hot spots in town. You know, went to the, went to the grocery store, went to the gas station. Now, this gas station, you know, this is the next explanation. We, uh, we went to the neighborhood where I grew up, and I went to the house where I grew up, and I went up and knocked on the door. I hadn't been there for decades, and I knocked on the door, and an elderly woman, uh, she was uh, probably early 80s, something like that, she answered the door. She lived there alone, and I introduced myself, and, and Beth and Isaac, and I said, this is the home I grew up in. I know this is a great imposition, and please feel free to say no, but would it be okay if, if I came in and brought my son in and just showed him the house where I grew up. And she was very gracious. She let us in. And we sat down in the living room there. And of course, that, this is a tiny little house. And just around the corner was the bedroom where I spent you know, my formative years. And this, this uh, sweet old woman, she spent the next 20 minutes uh, complaining about her bursitis and her shoulder. She was having a bad day with her shoulder. And... and Really, by the end of 20 minutes, uh, it occurred to us that she was pitiful. I mean, it was, just, it was really sad, you know, I, and I didn't know what to do. And I, I said, just before we leave, would it be okay if, if we just went around the corner and just glanced in my old bedroom just to show my son where, you know, I grew up, where I'd sleep at night? And she looked at him and she went, no, it's not okay. So she wouldn't let me go around the corner. Okay, okay thank you. Thanks for letting us in. It was, she was pitiful. And so we left there, and then we, we rode out to uh, 
to the area where my dad's store was years ago, and there was a guy who had converted his gas station because there was not enough traffic to sustain a gas station, and so he'd converted it into a little pizza shop, and he was in there, and he had developed some kind of a lung condition, and so he was on a he was on oxygen. He was sitting there kind of in a chair, kind of pitiful. We talked to him for a while. He was a family friend. It was good to see him, but he was pitiful. And so everywhere we went in Boswell, we ran into pitiful people. And, and so later that afternoon, we were at one of Beth's family members in another town. And, and so Beth's aunt asked Isaac, Isaac, what did you think of your dad's hometown? You know, she was trying to make conversation, trying to... And, Isaac, and I thought, yeah, that's a good question. What did you think of that? And I looked over at Isaac, and Isaac paused for a moment. And he said, I feel sorry for those people in Boswell, <laughs> which was his summary of my hometown. I feel bad for those folks. But here's what. I also took him into that church and walked him into that sanctuary, just a little small-town church. And I walked him over to the spot on the, on the kneeling rail, where I'd given my life to Jesus. And I said, that's where I was converted, right there. When you go back to a place where you know God has performed a great work in your life, it builds your faith. It encourages you. And it reminds you of God's goodness and His grace. And that's, and that's what we did. If you were Lazarus, watch this, you'd have to go back to your own grave, put flowers on your own grave. That would encourage you, wouldn't it? I was dead here once, and, <laughs> and I was resuscitated four days later. That would do it. Zacchaeus needs to go back to the sycamore tree. Just climb up in that tree. Get in the very limb where you first saw Jesus. I was sitting right here when Jesus passed by. That would build your faith. For, for the Apostle Paul, it would be go back on the road to Damascus and just get to that spot on the road where God knocked you to the ground and temporarily blinded you and began to speak his sense of calling to your life, it would matter to you to do that. Peter, Peter would need to row out on the Sea of Galilee and get about three and a half miles out, a miracle we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks, and, and just sit there in the boat for a while and just say, you know, I got out of the boat one night and walked on this water, at least for a while. That would increase your faith. Elijah would go back to Mount Carmel, right, where he defeated 450 prophets of Baal. Moses might go back to that to that mountaintop where the bush was aflame but not consumed. And we find Jesus again returning to Cana. Now I know Jesus is in his own unique category and it might be that, that he didn't need to go back, but he did. He went back to the place of his first miracle. And let me just remind you that they didn't drink all 757 bottles of that wine that he had, that he had transformed. You could still buy some on eBay. So it was all still fresh yeah one of my favorite places in the world to pray is at the old Union Chapel Church some of you don't know that Union Chapel began as a small country cornfield church uh, north of town here about 12 miles and so there are times in the summer when I'm on my bike and exercising that I'll take a route out that direction and oftentimes I'll just stop there and just get off my bike and just sit on the little front porch of the church because I cannot deny that miracles happened in that church and lives were changed and destinies were formed and God knows what has happened altogether emanating from that. And it builds my faith and it encourages me and it reminds me where we started and it reminds me of what God has done. So it encourages me.
Let me ask you a question. Where do you need to go back to? Where do you need to go back to? What do you need to believe God for once again? It's okay to go back and reminisce, especially when it encourages and builds your faith. Then the Bible says there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now let me uh, just remind you that that itinerant Jewish rabbis like Jesus and these royal officials, these guys do not travel in the same social circles. So they're not hanging out. So this is, a, this is one guy looking for the other guy. And this royal official finds him. The, the, these two guys, are, they're, not, uh, uh, they're not following each other on Twitter. They're not friends on Facebook. They don't read each other's Instagrams. They're not in a conversation about hashtag the dress. It's not happening. Hashtag the dress. Conversation about that. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Hashtag the dress. That's pretty good. How many of you do not know anything about hashtag the dress? Not a clue. It's not paying attention. It's black and blue. But desperate times call for desperate measures. And this guy isn't going to take no for an answer. He comes up to Jesus. He said, my son is sick. Would you please help him? And Jesus said, oh, you people are looking for signs. You know, if you don't, you don't see a miracle, you won't believe. And Jesus is almost irritated by the guy's approach. But this doesn't phase the official at all because his son is sick. He's near death and he doesn't care. He's desperate. He'll do whatever it takes. You, you understand the moment. And so he is just pressing. He said, look, you can get as irritated as you want with me, but my only hope is in you. Would you do something? And Jesus said, okay, go your way. Your son will be well. In this story, uh, let me ask you this. Who has the authority in this story? Who's the big shot in this story? Who's the one who has status and position in this story? The answer, of course, is the royal official. He has all the political clout. He has all the connections. He has all the social status. Jesus is just some... Some, some Claude who's, you know, stumbling around. He's itinerant. No one really knows him. He's, he's just going from place to place. And he's a nobody. And the official has all of the status, all the clout, all the social impact. But let me just remind you of something, friends, that when you walk with God, when you walk with God, oftentimes he will place you in situations where suddenly the roles get reversed. Because of the presence of Christ in you and the authority of God that is on you, opportunities will come to you when you will find yourself influencing people of a much higher status socially or politically or naturally. And I want you to have your eyes open for that sort of thing. And it's been remarkable, it's been remarkable in my life. You know, I'm a guy from nowhere. I'm a guy from Boswell. If you've ever been to Boswell, you just go just like that. Is how, you know, Jesus is from Nazareth. They said, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? Boswell is the same way. Boswell is pitiful. If you went there today, you would go, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I mean, it's just, it's pitiful. And you think, how, how can anything happen? But, God, but the authority of God, the blessing of God, the favor of God will follow you. And don't be surprised that if people that you would never imagine an association with actually 
falling under the influence of your life because of God's authority in it. So be encouraged that way. So you see this divine appointment happening. And so it says, then when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him. Now you can read right past that verse, he went to him, but it's important to know that he's from Capernaum and Cana is about 20 miles as the crow flies from Capernaum. And Capernaum is actually a place that's, that's below sea level. It's about 700 feet below sea, sea level. And so this noble official has made a 20-mile trip uphill through rugged terrain to get to Jesus. I mean, he's made an effort. There's been some miles crossed. There's been, there's been an effort made. And I, I might even say it this way, that sometimes faith is measured in miles. Sometimes faith is measured by the effort we make in our, in our confidence in what God is going to do. I recently sent a letter, a written, you know, snail mail, longhand letter to all of the 29 persons who have served on our team in Kazakhstan long term. So the folks who actually packed up, moved to Kazakhstan and lived there for a certain period of time, We've had, we had people live there any, anywhere from two years up to 11 years. One of our team members held, held the, hold the record, lived in Kazakhstan for 11 years. And so I sent all of them a letter and a little DVD of, of a summary of the, of the work there. And just to honor them and to thank them for their service and the difference that they have made in so many people's lives. You know, Kazakhstan is 10,000 miles from here. Sometimes you can measure faith by how many miles you travel to make a difference in someone's life. Now, I know how dangerous this, year, this is to talk like this because it's not just about logging miles or tracking hours because you can't earn a miracle any more than you can earn salvation. You can't. You can't manipulate God. You can't manufacture a miracle no matter how hard you try. You can't work one up. But sometimes, watch this, God wants to see if we are serious about following him. Sometimes God wants to know that we're all in so that he'll know he can go all in with us. And so we, we, sometimes you can measure a miracle in the miles. That is, sometimes in the effort. You know, the Israelites had to march around the walls of Jericho seven times. Naaman had to dip himself in the Jordan seven times. Elijah had to pray for rain seven times. It's almost as if God was asking, do you really trust me? And if you trust me, are you willing to make whatever effort is necessary in order to move my heart toward your miracle? We like to say around here that we ought to pray like it all depends on God and work like it all depends on us. I think that's a pretty good phrase. So you can't just pray like it all depends on God. You know, there are people who are guilty of that. Pray like it all depends on God. You know, I've been praying about that. Well, have you thought about like doing something on top of your prayers? Because you also have to work like it depends on you. Work like it all depends on you and pray like it all depends on God. And suddenly great things begin to happen. So don't wait for the miracle to come to you. Reach out there and grab for it. Go for it. Get a hold of it. See what God might do. He, he enjoys faith that has works attached. Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Here's the difference. Earning is an attitude, an expectation that I, I, I just uh, receive things because I am. 
effort is an action. So you can't earn a miracle, but effort is part of the equation. You have to hike uphill for 20 miles, but that extra effort can sometimes be the catalyst for the miracle. You're following this okay, isn't it? I mentioned this last week that sometimes success is measured by just showing up. 90% of life is just showing up. It's making an appearance. Now, what I'm saying is I, I just want to push us a little bit this weekend because I want, I want to hear God say to us at the end of our journey together, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want us, if, if, if Union, Union Chapel fails somehow, let's, let's fail making a real effort. You know, like A for effort. Well, those folks, you know, they got off track, but boy, they really tried hard. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, they, they, they missed it there at the end, but boy, you can't blame them for believing God and really trusting Him for great things by their efforts. So I love that. So I want to work and act and put an effort in like I really believe God's going to do something. Yeah, big vision, big hope, big expectation, big trust in God's miraculous work in our lives. And I'm going to act like and work like and give an effort that is commensurate with that expectation of God's miracle power. Yeah, I think you hear that. Now here's the last thought I want to make about this miracle. And that is a word from God. A word from God. You're looking for word. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, Go, your son will live. So the man believed the words Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. The man believed the words that Jesus had spoken to him. That's, that's an important phrase. Now let me talk about that just a little bit. What most of us need is a word from God. Especially in those moments when we feel like our back's against the wall and we're a bit desperate. We need a word from God. You don't need another sermon. Although you may hear a word from God through a sermon, and that's great. But what we really need is we need to hear a word from God to us in a specific moment for a specific need. And when we get a word from God... Then we have the opportunity to respond to that word by faith, to place our trust and confidence and hope in God's word, his message to us in that moment. You need a word from God. When I was a new Christian, I uh, found John chapter 15, verse 7. I read this verse, and it was meaningful to me. And Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and it will be given to you. I thought, tell that. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty amazing promise. If you abide in me and, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will, and God will give it. And so I just hung on to that. And over the years, I've learned what, what it means to abide, abiding in God and his word abiding in us. Let me just give you five quick translations. If you're taking notes, you might want to just drop these phrases down. One, one translation for abide is to stay overnight. In other words, I'm not going to sleep till I get a word from you, God. I, I'm, I'm abiding until I hear from you. I'm going I'm to pull an all-nighter until I get a word. Another phrase is it means the whole fast. The whole fast. That, to me, that's like white-knuckling the promises of God. I'm, I'm just hanging on to you, God, until you give me an answer, until I get a word from you. That, that's what it means to abide. Another Another phrase 
that can, can give definition to abide is to stand still. Stand still. In other words, I'm not going to move. I'm not going uh, to vary in any way. I'm going to stand right here and, and trust you until I hear a word from you. It means to stand. Stand still. Then another definition for abide is to tarry. To tarry. This is a word that's lost in our vernacular today. We don't wait for anything. Tarry means to wait, to hesitate. We don't like to wait for a moment. But to abide in God and to abide, let his word abide in you, it means to, to wait, means to tarry. Remember Jesus said to the disciples, this is what I want you to do. I'm about to leave and you're going to be here by, by, by yourself. I won't be here personally to be with you any longer. So, but here's the mission. Here's the mandate. I want you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. So here's this great commission that Jesus gave them. Then he said, but, but tarry, wait, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit for this work. So he said, you, you best not try to do this work, fulfill this mission, this, this great commission, before you receive the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So wait, 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 tarry until you be endued with power from on high. And so here's this abiding, and we learn the wisdom of God in all of it. It also means to be moved, be moved. And we read cases like Zerubbabel in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came on and he got excited. He got animated. He got filled with, with energy. And so he got, he got busy as a result of that. So when, you, when you're abiding in God and his word is abiding in you, it's a great thing. Let me put this statement up on the screen. It is hard to believe the word if you don't know the word. It's hard to believe the word if you don't know the word. So you have to spend time in the Bible. Uh, here's another verse that I found years ago. This is when I was in the university and I was discouraged. My, the circumstances in my life were very, very difficult at the time. And I just felt like I was losing heart. I was giving up. You know, I just didn't know if I could keep going. And I found this verse one day in the Bible, Luke 18.1. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Now that was a word. That was a word of God for me. You need a word from God. So that was a word that, that encouraged me to pray, lean into God, rest in God, and that would get me through the season of discouragement. And it, and it did. Uh, while I was in pastoral ministry years ago, I came to a place where I felt like I don't have anything left. Maybe you've gotten to a place like that in your life. You just feel like I'm completely empty. I, I, I can't I have, I have no more fight in me. There's just no more, no more fight. That's, that's it. I think I'm done. And I was reading by way of trying to encourage myself. In that, in that season of time, I was reading one of our friend Terry Takel's books, The Presence-Based Church. I picked it, I'd read it before. I just picked it up again. I just thought, well, maybe this will help me because <laughs> I have no fight left. And I picked it up, and, and I was reading through that thing, and, you know, in week number two, reading a little bit every day, I came to page 106, and Terry just illustrates one of his points by talking about this occasion when a great army arrayed against Israel under the leadership of Jehoshaphat, and everybody knew that it was over. They were going to get overrun, overwhelmed. They were all going to die. 
and the word of God came to the leader, to the, to the king in 2 Chronicles 20, and it said this, do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. Now, can, do you see those words? Don't be discouraged, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. You may be facing a real serious enemy. Here's the word that, that came to me. Don't be afraid, don't be discouraged. For the battle is not yours, but God's. That's reassuring, isn't it? Now, if, if, if the next phrase in this verse had said, so pick up your sword and go fight, I'm, I'm done. Because, I'm, because I'm, my experience in the moment was I had no fight. I got no fight. I have no fight. I'm, I, I'm, I have nothing left with which to fight. But here's what it said. You'll not have to fight. <laughs> that was so helpful to me. I can't tell you. Take up your position. Stand firm. And see the deliverance the Lord will give you. So here was the word of God to me. Now, I understand that 2 Chronicles chapter 20, this, in the Bible, that wasn't written to me. This was a word to Jehoshaphat back in the day. So the, the primary application, historical context of this verse, was a word of God to that leader at that time. But there's, a, but there's the potential in the word of God for it to have secondary meaning in a particular moment sometime future. It's not the primary meaning or application of this scripture. It wasn't to my life. It was, it, it was to Jehoshaphat. But it came as a secondary word of God to me for a particular moment in my life. And so when I read it, the Holy Spirit activates those words in my heart. And I receive a word from God. And he says, look, don't be afraid. Just take up your position. Just stand. Can you stand up? I said, well, I can stand up. But I've got no fight. Well, just take your position and stand there. If you'll just, if you'll just assume the position, <laughs> I'll take care of the rest. It's a great word. It's a great word. There, were time, there was a time in our, in, our, in our church's history where we just were out of space. We were out of room. We, we just didn't know what we were going to do next. And we were out in that little cornfield church, and the thing was just overflowing every weekend, and we just didn't have any space. In fact, the last Sunday we met in the cornfield church, a little brick church out there, uh, we set a goal of having 300 people in church that day. And the sanctuary would maybe, we could cram 140 people in there, but if you put children and others in the fellowship hall and then cram people down in the basement, a little dingy basement where we had a little couple of Sunday school classes, maybe we'd get 300 people in there. I mean, it was, it was illegal and immoral to have 300 people in there. But we, but we set a goal, 300 people, and, and I was in the middle of my sermon that day, and we had one of these little sign boards on the side of the wall there that little churches used to have. And the guy that you used to count the, count the attendance, he'd come in and he'd slide that number into, the, into that little sign board during the service. And he came in that day and he put up the numbers, 298. 298? 298. I stopped. I said, Bob, 298? And he said, I'm sorry. He said, I've counted everyone in this building twice. There are only 298 people in this, in this building. And I just paused for a second. I just thought, well, that's not good. Our goal was 300. And so I, so I paused and I said, how many of you women here are pregnant? And you don't mind us knowing about it. Three hands went up. We counted them twice, 301. We made, yeah, we made the goal. 
we were out of room. So one day I'm, I'm praying about this, thinking about this, and I read Isaiah 54, and it says, Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtain wide. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes, for you will spread out to the right and the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Now, obviously, that was a word of God through the prophet Isaiah to his contemporary culture in that moment of history. This was a word of encouragement to the nation of Israel to spread out. But when I read it, it became a secondary useful word of God to me, to us, in the context of our need. And within a few days after that, I found myself at Burger King restaurant right over here by the mall, and I was sitting there by myself, minding my own business, eating a sandwich. This was on December the 12th, 1983. And God began to speak to me. I began to receive a word from God. The first time this thought had ever crossed my mind. I'm sitting in Burger King in 1983. When the thought comes across my mind, take your worship, move your church to Delta High School. It never crossed my mind. No one had ever said it. No one ever referred to it. No one had a, had a thought about it. And I was sitting there, and I, I, to, to explain to you that this was God, I actually pushed my sandwich away from me for a moment and, and started to write down what I was hearing God. Only Jesus could get me to stop eating a Whopper. Hope you appreciate that. I took the napkin, and I began to write on this napkin. I still have the napkin in my file at home. You know, someday after I'm dead and gone a long time, someone ought to, you know, put it in an archive or something. Back in the day, one of our old-timey pastors, he heard from God at Burger King. Or maybe not. Maybe you don't want to do that. <laughs> but I still have the napkin, and I pulled it out. You know, sometimes I just pull it out and look at it, and it reminds me, you know, God was at work. God gave us a word. And I can tell you a whole sequence of miracles that got us into Delta High School. I'm telling you, it was a miracle. And we met there for over four and a half years. But, but I, I had gotten a word from God. And then, and then after we'd been at Delta for a while, we realized we were going to have to come up with some permanent solution to our facility needs. And we actually bought some property up here north of town, about 15 acres. We are going to build something on that. And, you know, that just never did feel quite right. But we had to do something. You know, the high school was saying, you guys are going to have to get out of here. And so, we, you know, we're feeling some pressure. We have to do something. And, and, and one of our members suggested we come and look at this old facility. It was a vacated car dealership, you know, McCoy Ford used to have their facility here, so our main building was all part of McCoy Ford. And we came over here, there was a handful of us, and we went through this, the building, and it was a mess. It was deplorable. I mean, the roof was leaking, the windows were busted out, um, the place was in total disarray, the doors were kicked in, there were volunteer trees growing up in the middle of the parking lot. And, we just, and it was cold that day. We, we finally just stood in the middle of what is our sanctuary now. We just kind of stood there and said, well, maybe we ought to just pray for a minute. We said, God, thanks for letting us see this today, and we're sure glad that you wouldn't ask us to buy this place, and, and this is miserable, and so we're going to go home and get warm now, so, you know, salute. That was our prayer. I mean, I walked out of there going, woo, nasty. But we had to find something, and we continued to seek God, and we vetted that process as carefully as we could. And one day, I can tell you where I hear God best. I, when I'm sitting in my canoe in the middle of the lake, I can hear God just very clearly. I just hear him there. 
And so a few months after that, I'm sitting in the middle of the lake. I you know, just paddle out early in the morning. The sun's coming up. The, the, the lake was like glass. There's no, there's no noise. Now I'm just sitting there, just sitting there, talking to God. And God spoke four words to me. He said, buy that car lot. My first reaction was, get ye behind me, Satan. I know the voice of the devil when I hear it. <laughs> no. And then again, buy that car lot. I said, now, Lord, if that's you, uh, you must be confused. Let me explain to you why that's not a good idea. Buy that car lot. Well, are you, seriously? I mean, who, who converts a car lot into a church? No, can't do that. Buy that car lot. So before I got out of my canoe that morning, I had received a word from God. I came back home, and I said, we have to buy that car lot. People went, yeah, we have to do it. And we did. And now people can walk around this facility on our campus, and we can go, look at the miracles God has done. Look at the miracles God has done. Look at the miracle of provision that God has given us. You notice what happened in this story. Evidently, the moment Jesus said, your son will live, this man believed. He took him at his word, and he went back. And what did he do? He, evidently, he had made a note of the time. Remember this? Because when he met his servants coming the other way, he asked them, what time did the son get well? And sure enough, it was the very moment Jesus said. So you get a word from God, and you act in faith on that word. Listen, God will do something miraculous. That's the promise. And there, there are some miracles that may not happen for years. I can't tell you how or when or where, but if you'll pray through that and you'll seek God until you get a word on that, if you'll pray through, God will break through. That's what I believe. That's what I've experienced. Last story. Uh, we're taking uh, this series from a book written by uh, a pastor in Washington, D.C., Mark Batterson. He's written this book, The Grave Robber. It's just a great book. I know many of you have copies of that. And if you're in the small groups, you're using those video materials that Pastor Batterson has uh, produced. And so it's just great stuff. And he tells the story in the book of a man, a friend of his whose name was Peter. And he was a business guy and a devoted follower of Jesus. And he was made sensitive to these divine appointments and the way God orchestrated these miracles sometimes through our lives. And and he got uh, transferred from one flight, a business flight, to another flight on his way to Vegas. And somehow in the transfer of, from one airline to the other, he began to have this sense that he was about to experience a divine appointment. He, and he just couldn't shake that. And so he gets on this second plane on, en route to Vegas, and, and he's sitting next to a 17-year-old young woman. And he has this sense of urgency with her for some reason and, and sits down and is trying to be friendly. Hi, how are you? And her response to him was, uh, hello, don't talk to me again, and the armrest is mine. And that was the interpretation of her response and body language, like bug off. 
And so he sat there for a while and the plane takes off and, and yet he cannot shake this sense that God has him in that seat for a reason. And so he acts on that word. And he turns to this young woman again who he knows is not receptive to his friendliness and says to her, I, I'm sorry to bother you again and, and please just tell me to leave you alone if that's your need. But I just have this sense that you're burdened by something. And if that's true, I'd be glad to listen to you. And the girl looked at him and said, I'm pregnant, three months. My boyfriend told me that I should go to Vegas to take care of the problem. And so this morning I stole my dad's credit card, went to the airport, bought this plane ticket, and I'm heading to Vegas to have an abortion. My parents don't know where I am. They don't know anything about this. And she said, I don't know what to do. And before the end of that flight, he had shared the hope that we have in Jesus Christ with this young woman. And when she landed, she immediately called her parents, who were worried sick, told them the circumstance. They said to her, take the next flight back home so we can take care of you and take care of your baby. And two lives were saved. It may be at work, you may be at home, you may be going somewhere, or you may be returning from somewhere far. And God will put you in the right place at the right time with the right people. And he'll give you a word that can lead to a miracle. And so rather than focusing again today on the miracle you may need, focus on the idea that maybe you will be the miracle that someone else needs. And if you have an ear for that, God will orchestrate all of these relationships and moments for our lives, and we will be influential for his sake. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Let's talk, talk to God about this. God, help us. Help us live a spirit-led life. Help us follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Help us be a people that recognize a God-ordained opportunity when we see one. And so, Lord, help us to be sensitive to these divine appointments. Remind us of the miracles that you have performed in our lives, and if necessary, just to go back to that place and to relive them again so that our faith might be encouraged and bolstered. And Lord, then when we receive a word from you, help us to act on it, making a difference. We pray in Jesus' name. The people said, would you stand with us?